with the congregation and thanking you for being here this evening. Thank you for all those who are visiting in the audience. We appreciate you so much, and we hope that you feel welcome and hope that you are edified as a result of being in the service this evening. This evening, I'd like to talk with you for a few minutes about a lesson that I've entitled, Our Peace, A Quest for Unity. Uh, I heard a fellow say many years ago that if a preacher runs out of a topic that he could preach on, he can preach on at least either sin or unity. Well, the two, you always a need for that, didn't there? Well, tonight I'd like to speak with you for a few minutes about this important topic. And when we talk about being an instrument of peace or we talk about being peace, uh, many times we don't understand, I don't believe, what we're talking about. And I think that that is true also in unity and the desire for unity. And I believe that the Bible speaks to these things and speaks very explicitly where you and I can understand what God desires for us. Uh, I remember as a kid on Saturday morning, there was uh, always cartoons when I was a kid. And there was this cartoon that came on quite often. And this one character in this cartoon, he's seeking uh, the reason for life and finding peace. And the whole cartoon's about all of the trouble and the turmoil that he goes to to try to try, finally climb a mountain in Tibet somewhere. And he gets up to this guy and he says, what's the meaning of life? And the fellow doesn't answer him. And that seems to be kind of the way that we think about peace is how I'm seeking this peace, but I find no answers. I'm seeking unity, but I find no answers. And I keep looking and looking and looking. And then we read passages like Philippians 4 and 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And we wonder, what is this peace of God? What's he talking about? Is it an inner peace? Is it an outward peace? What's he talking about? Some people think it's some mystical, impossible to understand peace. Some uh, mystical understand peace of mind. That no matter what happens, you're always just happy. Oh, happy-go-lucky, he's a peaceful man. Always happy. I want to tell you, I hurt my back last year, herniated a disc, and I was not happy. And I was not very peaceful in this some mystical peace of mind. My body affected my inner peace. And there was times, to be frank with you, and I never understood the uh, backache until I went to the doctor. And he said, well, you're a member of one of two groups in this country and in the world. I said, what's that? He said, those who have back trouble and those who are waiting to have back trouble. And that's true to a great extent. But I never understood the, the pain and the discomfort of that until I experienced it. And I'd get down on myself a little bit. Because I'm hurting... And when I'm hurting, I didn't feel very religious. I didn't feel very spiritual. My body affected the way that I felt. And then I read this passage, the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And here I am just as ill as a bear. Robin walk in the room and she'd better be tiptoeing. You know what I mean? Some of you do. And the other half will find out. <laughs> 
It's the way it is. And we, we get disturbed over our inner peace not being as well as it should be. And we wonder, well, maybe I'm not as spiritual as I ought to be. Maybe my life is not what it should be. When in fact, we may not be understanding this peace at all. And what he means by the peace of God that passeth all understanding. Is it a feeling? Is it more than that? Some people say it's better felt than told. Well, those folks have never been sick a day in their life, I guess. Because we just don't feel very religious sometimes when our body fails us. But God never fails us. And we know that. And the failure is our failure in those things and allowing the physical to take over the spiritual. However, this problem still exists. Ephesians 2.14 is the passage that we want to look at this evening where the Apostle Paul talks about a peace. And this is the peace that we need to study and that we need to come to some kind of understanding. Because I believe, brethren, those of us who have no peace with our fellow man and lacking unity with our fellow man and with our church brethren, it's because we don't have that relationship with the Prince of Peace. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one and broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both God and both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. This evening we want to look at a process of peace, if you will, of our peace. A process of finding peace, of knowing peace. I believe this passage details this process. That's the amazing thing about the scripture to me is that there are so many processes that if we can read them and discover them and rightly divide this word of truth, you and I can learn and we can grow and we can develop and we can be more like Jesus. We want to look, first of all, at the origin of peace and the process of peace and the means of peace. The origin of peace, and first of all, let's define this word of what I believe the Scripture is talking about when it talks about peace uh, especially in this context of what we're studying this evening, for certainly there is an inward peace, but we have to know where that inward peace comes from. This oneness, and the definition of peace literally is oneness. No one ever has peace except through this, of having a unity, of having a oneness. Peace means being one. Now notice this illustrated in Matthew 19 verse 5. And said, for this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. We see a unity that's involved in a husband and wife that is similar to our unity in Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's the same. Very similar. And this one flesh union then becomes a union 
where peace is made between a man and a woman to work toward a common goal and to strive in a oneness relationship. Now, oftentimes there's a conflict that comes up in this relationship and lives are torn apart. We call it divorce and it's a real thing. When you consider that this world is consumed with divorce and this conflict, we have to understand there's a peace then that is missing in this relationship that God says that is a oneness, is a unity, a peace, literally a peace between man and woman, the peace that God foreordained in the Garden of Eden. I guess every man and woman has their moments of conflict that's married. But it doesn't necessarily end up like this, where lives are torn apart. It doesn't end like that. Sometimes as a marriage, as it going toward this uh, final solution of lives being torn apart, you think, well, if we can just quit arguing and quit fighting, we can have peace. I've got a cute little cartoon there. I think it illustrates it pretty well. Cessation of conflict is... Not as a whole lot more than a lull between battles. A lot of people, they want to cease fire so they can reload it between. And uh, they keep lobbing the shells. Keep firing. Well, rest for a few minutes, you know. Uh, I've heard people say, me and my wife, we made an agreement that we'd never go to bed arguing. Sometimes we have to stay up all night. You know, that type deal. The cessation of conflict then is for them is uh, we're going to argue this all the way through. Somebody's going to come out victorious. Other people say, "Man, my wife never go to bed mad." You know, we'll we'll pick it back up in the morning. We'll be mad tomorrow morning. A lot of people fight that way. Cessation of conflict generally is no more than a lull between battles for a lot of people. And I think about that in the church. There's some folks here tonight that have lived through times in the church and a quest for unity in the church. And you'd have moments of peace, you said. I've lived there. I've lived through that. What's a, what are those moments of peace? It's, it's a lull between battles. Many times. That's all it is. Peace is more than that. Unity is more than that. The source of peace declares unto us that it's oneness and it's harmony. Mutual enjoyment. Being one. And anything less than that is superficial. Now if we make this application to our home. The oneness relationship is a man and a woman striving for a common goal. And learning to enjoy Mutual things and thinking along the same lines toward those goals. And then a peace is created in that home. Anything less than mutual enjoyment of being one is superficial. I suggest to you this evening that if you don't like to be around church people, then you're not unified with church people. If you don't like to be around good people, And you'd rather be around wicked people than you don't have the peace that God is talking about because he's talking about becoming one. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. 
Me and my wife has had arguments, and then there'd be an enforced truce. Hold it, hold it, we'll just stop right here. We've argued enough. <laughs> you ever done that? And enforce that. I want to tell you, that's not peace either. Because whatever is causing the division is still there. And it's going to come back maybe tomorrow morning. And then there's people that like to create a peace, or what they call a peace, by distance and coldness. So I get the idea with people is, oh, I'll go to church with him, but I sure don't like him. And I don't want to be around him much. And I'll, I'll keep my distance from him. We don't have a lot in common. You ever hear all that? That's not peace. And it's superficial to claim that it is. Distance and coldness is not peace. Now you try distance and coldness in your home with your wife or your husband and see how much peace you have. It won't work. But the source of peace tells us it's oneness and harmony. God is interested in the healing of conflict and the restoration of oneness. And the peace that the Apostle Paul is talking about then that is very difficult for us to understand is the peace that God has made where we can be one with him. And the group of people coming from many different forms and many different walks of life can be one with him. What a oneness and harmony that God paints for us. A beautiful picture, a restoration of conflict and a healing of conflict. Paul said here that he is our peace, for he is our peace, that Jesus Christ is our peace. He heals the conflict. He restores that which was broken. It's not a cessation of war, a battle. It's a healing of the conflict. He is our peace. Our peace is made with Jesus. And when our peace is made with Jesus, then there is an inward problem that is resolved. And if our inward problem is resolved of our battle with God then we can see clearly how to manage and apply practical remedies to our conflicts in the flesh. I maintain that the conflicts of the flesh cannot be solved except the inward battle with God is solved first. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he is our peace who hath made both one. I'd like to uh, look at the process of peace that's illustrated in this chapter between the Jew and the Gentile. And then I want to make a practical application, hopefully, where you and I can understand and how we can apply these principles in our life that we can not only make peace with God, but we can make peace with those who would be in conflict with us. First of all, the hostility has to end. I want, I've got a picture here, and I want you to see this. And this is a picture from uh, the wall out of the temple. 
Archaeologists dug this thing up. They found it, and they've got it on display in several, uh, have had it on display in several locations. And it reads, uh, the inscription on this rock reads, let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught will be held accountable for his ensuing death. (laughs) Now the Jews placed that, the parapet, maybe not be a word you're familiar with, unless you're an architectural student, and I'm not, I just happened to read. But this parapet is a wall that went up higher than the roof itself. And it went all the way up. And we see that sometime in architect even today. However, the purpose of that in this period of time and throughout history was a protection against enemies. And it was for battle and for possible ensuing battle. So this parapet was built in the temple. And then this inscription was placed on it. If you're going to cross this barrier, you're going to die. Now, who'd they write that to? (laughs) They wrote it to anybody who wasn't a Jew. That would apply to me and you. I got a fellow back home in our community. He really values his uh, boundaries. And he's not much of a neighborly man. He put up a uh, sign, no trespassing sign. On the back corner of his property, just as far back as you could see from the road. Nobody could see this sign from the road. Impossible to see it. No trespassing. The only person that can see it is his neighbor. (laughs) You know people like that? Well, his neighbor gets the message. He won't cross. And he can't be a neighbor to him. How can he reach out to a man like that? He sees a man who says, you stay away from me. This was the animosity that existed between the Jew and the Gentile. Now, if you come up on a sign that says, if you cross this boundary, you're going to die. Do you think that fellow said, how are you going to make peace with that? What would you do? You'd do exactly like the Gentiles did. You'd try to stay away from him. And you wouldn't have that problem. This illustrates to us a division that existed between two religious groups of people. That God is going to take these two people, the Jew and the Gentile, the Jews and everybody else, and bring them in. To one body. That's amazing. How can he do that? The barrier had to be abolished. The barrier between the Jew and the Gentile being abolished creates one new man. Unity and peace. That barrier is represented in the law. Paul says this hostility between the Jew and the Gentiles was abolished in Jesus' death on the cross. The only person that could ever destroy this barrier was Jesus Christ. So Paul states in Ephesians 2, 
our peace. Jesus destroyed this hostility and this barrier. While the barrier by all people seemed impenetrable, impossible to penetrate, God knew how to destroy it. And he did through his son. The law of ordinances created the hostility. Remove the partition, you remove the hostility. Now, there's a principle here that I want to share with you. And maybe you've thought of this. Maybe you've studied this. I hope you have. But I believe that it's enlightening to us in in our everyday walk of life. If we remove the partition that's separating us, if we're capable of doing that, then we can remove the hostility. Now, Jesus was capable. The law was contrary against a man. The law never could save a man. What could the law do? The law held one purpose and one purpose only. That was to convict a man. The law never freed a man. It just brought about conviction. Ephesians 2.15 says, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. So the second step then is the hostility ends, and the hostility ends by the ending of demands, unreasonable demands, impossible demands. I, uh, you see, the, the, uh, the power of hostility, and you think about this, the power of hostility is in the demands. That's where the power's at. We were knocking doors this summer prior to our gospel meeting, and me and a young man was out knocking doors, and we were visiting just random houses uh, off of a newcomer's list. And went up to this, this house, and this woman, she came out, and she met us. And she said, we told her what we were doing and where we were from, obviously. She looked at me, and she said, me and God don't get along. And I said, well, how's that working out for you? <laughs> Is that going well for you? And I asked her, I said, why do you and God not get along? That's a fair question, isn't it? You know, there's maybe somebody in this audience this evening. I don't know you as far as what's going on in your life. Some of you I'm just barely acquainted with. But there may be some of you here that deep down you feel like you and God are button heads. Well, why? I'll tell you what it was with her. She told me. She said, I've got two sons. She said, we had to leave our home in Nashville, Tennessee and move up here with a hint of God-forsaken place in her voice, which it's not. But she, <laughs> she said, we had to leave our home in Nashville and move here because I have two sons and both of them are on heroin and they're driving us crazy and I'm scared to be around them. And I said, and you're mad at God? Did God put those boys on heroin? 
Is God the reason why these boys are, are living the way they're living? She said, will you pray with me? She understood. She got it. God's not the fault. And when we are at odds with God, generally what we're doing is what this woman was doing. She was making an unreasonable demand. She was saying, God, you'd be my friend if you'll take care of these boys and you'll heal them of their heroin addiction. Not taking into account all the time that God gave us free moral choice and that we can choose to shoot heroin in our veins if we want to. And God's not going to stop us from doing that. And it's not God's fault. A lot of times we have problems in our life and we want to make an unreasonable demand out of God. And all that does is create hostility. Now the hostility is not fostered from God, it's fostered from us. Let's lay it where it needs to be. Take, for instance, the Gospel of Luke, the 18th chapter, verse 11. Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. What an unreasonable demand. Have you ever thought about that as a demand? Well, we make it all the time. We just don't realize it. What this Pharisee was saying is, I want everybody to be just like me. And the demand has to be just like me, not like you, God. And I'll make this unreasonable demand. After all, I'm I'm such a good person. And I've got it all figured out. And he looks at other people with disdain and he says, he's an unjust man. He's an extortioner. Why, he's an adulterer. He's all these things. And I don't want to have anything to do with him. And therefore, the hostility begins. And it continues. Because of an unreasonable demand. Now, the desire to be like him, in his mind, was a pattern of perfection for the Pharisee. So he wanted to become the source of peace. And brethren, he's not. And you're not the source of peace. And I'm not the source of peace. The source of peace is Jesus Christ. Hostility exists when impossible demands are made. Generally, these impossible demands are made through self-righteousness and hypocrisy. There may be some here this evening. Who are at odds with God. And not at peace with God. Not because of what God is doing, but because of what you are doing or what I am doing. And then try to justify that through self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And we'll never have peace. Not peace with God that way. The Pharisee was self-righteous and he was a hypocrite. The hostility must end by the ending of demands. And then grace and forgiveness can be applied. I mentioned briefly the other night about the prodigal son and the difference between him leaving and him coming. 
home. There's one primary difference that is illustrated in his language is he left home saying, give me, give me, give me, give me of my inheritance. And he came home saying, make me. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Grace and forgiveness can then be applied when the demands of unreasonable demands have ceased. Somebody says, isn't that just an indulgence? Just to to have a a forgiving heart like that? Aren't you just applying indulgence with them? You know, I've wondered how many people thought that's what was happening when Jesus looked at the woman who was caught in the very act of adultery and forgave her of her sins and then told her to go and sin no more. You know, if he hadn't told her to go and sin no more, then it might be an application of indulgence. But it's only an indulgence if nothing new is created. When something new is created, then it's no longer an indulgence. If I am forgiven of sins without repentance, then nothing new is created. For to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace. Man cannot create, only God. God makes a new man, a new unity that never existed before since Adam. And that unity is this wall of partition that's broken down in the commandments of demands that can never be satisfied, but can only convict. The hostility ends. Repentance occurs and something new happens. A new man is created. And God creates that new man. The church refers to individual. Always, always. When, when the Bible uses the term churches, it's translated as assemblies. But when the word church is used, it's always an individual. There's one body, one Lord, one faith. Always individual. There's not multiple bodies. Many coming together. To make one. That's a unity. That's a unity that only God can create. And he creates that through grace and forgiveness being imparted to the new man. The church is not a picture of what man does. I want you to to know that. This this picture of the church that we uh, envision of what we are. And what we are to become should always be a vision of what God is working and doing within us. It is what God does, not what we do. And when we understand that peace and unity can be created through what God does. By us accepting his commandments. Quit placing unreasonable demands upon God and accept what He says. And God can create within you a new man. And all of us, old hillbilly from Tennessee, 
and a West Texas boy, we've got so much in common, don't we? Our commonality is found in Jesus Christ. He creates within us a new man. And many coming from all parts of the world, even a Jew and a Gentile, where once the animosity was so great that a trespasser was killed. But now, in Jesus, that peace is made and a unity is made. But as long as you continue to try to volley with God in these shots of unreasonable demands and creating barriers of hostility with Him, you'll never have peace. And you'll never have unity. Divisions today exist between many different groups. They talk about how this country is divided, and it probably is. Between blacks and whites, Hispanic, social, self-appointed church bosses, and a lot of religious organizations. We've always had that to face, haven't we? That goes back to the very early time, very beginning of the church. All of these divisions occur because of these reasons that we've stated. And unity occurs when the walls of division are broken down and we learn what it means to demonstrate forgiveness and administer grace to each other. All through the scripture, the commandment of us to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And brethren, that is a condition for salvation. Because, you see, God cannot make peace with us except we break down this wall of hostility. And we humble ourselves before God. You and I can all come to the same place and we can come to the foot of the cross, every one of us. And at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There's no big I and little you. There's no Pharisee, there's no, there's no, there's no self-appointed church bosses, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. There's no black, there's no white. At the, at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Because at the foot of the cross is where we stand as sinners. Every one of us. And except this forgiveness be applied to our life, we will never have peace. Except we end the hostility with God and quit fighting against Him. It's humorous to me. It's with the Apostle Paul and the, he, this heavenly light shines down from him. And, and, and Jesus Christ says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Why do you kick against the pricks? In other words, how is that working for you? you? You doing okay with that? Look at your life. Is it, is it so perfect? So wonderful that you'll continue to fight against God to keep it? That's amazing to me that anyone could ever come to that conclusion. You see, brethren, we get sick. We have back problems. We have heart problems. We have all kinds of physical ailments. And sometimes we don't feel very spiritual. But at the end of the day, Jesus has done something for us that nobody else can do. 
And he has ended the hostility between God and between man. If you'll allow him to break that wall between you that you've created, that you've built. Some of us are saying to God, no trespassing, God. This is my life. This is where I want to be. No trespassing, God. That wall has to come down. That parapet has to be destroyed. God did it with a Jew and the Gentile as an illustration for us of accepting all men. I want to tell you, the destruction of Jerusalem was a pivotal point in church history. If that if, it, if the temple had not been destroyed, then it would not be clear to us today, but it's, it's crystal clear. We see that that wall has been destroyed and tore down. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Colossians 3, verse 10, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. You and I have no reason to boast. We have no reason for pride. We have no reason for hostility with God. He offers to make peace. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us are evil, equal in the fact that we're sinners. All of us are sinners. All of us have failed. And there at the foot of the cross, we find a peace that is offered. We all stand in need of the same grace and the same forgiveness. When we realize this, then we can put an end to the hostility that exists. Now, If you're here this evening and you've not made peace with God or allowed him to make peace with you, it's because of your hostility toward him. And I'm inviting you through the word of God, through the words that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us to come to Jesus Christ tonight, repenting of your sins so that a new man can be made. Not an indulgence in sin, but a new man to be created. To repent of your sins and make that good confession that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Be buried with Him in baptism. So that you can be raised to walk in newness of life. Verse 16 of this passage says, And that He might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. The enmity that exists between us is this enmity of sin that destroys our peace with God and destroys our peace with our fellow man. When you see and when you make peace with God, then you can see clearly and have a visual for what you need to do to make peace with your fellow man. If you're here this evening, we can assist you in any way. Won't you come? It's together we stand and sing.